My name is Richard Hill. Welcome to the monthly Labor Report, where we discuss the latest news on labor actions, imminent and ongoing strikes, and contract negotiations taking place nationally and even globally. And we'll also probe more deeply into some of the structural issues underlying the recent upsurge in militant labor action and organizing that has shaken the previously immovable pillars of late-stage neoliberalism. And we'll do all this with the help, as usual, of Michael Zweig, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. He's an economist, a labor historian, and founder of the Center for the Study of Working Class Life at Stony Brook. Michael is the author of several books, including his just-released Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism, published by PM Press. He is also the recipient of several awards for his teaching and contributions to the field of working class studies. Michael, thanks so much for being with us for this third edition of the Monthly Labor Report. Well, thanks for having me, and I'm happy to be here. Great. So I just wanted to mention that we decided to bring these regular labor updates to our listeners due to the fact that in-depth coverage of labor and working class issues are almost entirely absent from the mainstream media. And when they do occur, they're presented with a marked anti-labor bias by reporters and pundits who tend to display an ignorance of labor history and the struggles of working people. So we have much to talk about today, the most prominent being the auto workers' strike against the big three, which arrived at a tentative settlement on October 30th. So why don't we start by getting your general thoughts and overview on the strike and this tentative agreement. The strike was really quite a a departure from previous uh, tactics in the auto industry and UAW, and it paid off. It was really a very, very excellent example of militants and strategic uh, targeting. Uh, For the first time in the history of uh, the auto industry negotiations, which goes back 75 years uh, or more now, the um, auto uh, unions, the UAW, struck all three companies together, all three of the major uh, Detroit-based companies. And they struck them all together, but without striking any one of them totally which is the reverse of what they used to do. They used to pick one and strike all their uh, production facilities. Here they picked all three together and then just picked individual plants where they thought there was particular vulnerability that the company would have. And they increased the pressure by increasing the number of plants and the strategic uh, positioning of those plants over time uh, in the weeks of the strike 
And that resulted in a very, very substantial gain. They got a 25% pay increase over four years. They got, more important, some control over technology. They got in, uh, union recognition into the battery plants as there's new uh, technology coming into the auto industry with the electric vehicles. That is a different production process and that has a different supply chain. And so the UAW, through these strikes, was able to penetrate that supply chain and get into the battery plants uh, that these companies control, even though they aren't auto plants as such. So all of that was a major, major transformation in the auto industry and a sign to the working class in all industries that it is possible to strike, it is possible to get real gains and victories if you're strategic and if you are prepared. And that's what the UAW did uh, with its new leader, Sean Fain. And it was something I think we all need to pay clear attention to. Is there anything that the workers, that the UAW did not get? I noted that initially I thought the, the wage demand was a 40% increase over four years. I understand they settled for 25%. Also, what about the tier structure? Did they win on that? They won on the tier structure. They got rid of the so-called two-tier system, which uh, was instituted in the period of the financial crisis of 2008-2009, where the auto companies uh, were allowed to pay their new employees a lower wage for the same work that existing employees were doing. And uh, that uh, two-tier system over time as more and more new workers came in and more and more existing uh, workers at the time of the contract would go off in retirement would lower the overall wages that were paid in the industry. So that two-tier structure was uh, abolished and the uh, wages were raised uh, quite substantially. There's 25% over four years. And uh, they also uh, won some big victories in the uh, pension plans. And it was uh, across the board uh, a, a real powerful example of union activity and union gains. You talked about the strategy or the strategic nature of this strike. Very interesting tactical idea of taking on all three of the companies, but unpredictably striking individual companies one at a time, keeping them all guessing as to who was to come next. What was the effect, do you think, of that strategy? I think that the uh, auto uh, executives were more worried and thought, well, you know, we don't know exactly where this is going. We don't know what next uh, plant is going to get struck. We don't know how long this is going to go. We don't know what is going to happen to our supply chain, and we better get serious about these negotiations earlier than we otherwise would. And the fact that they were working with all three companies simultaneously meant that the industry as a whole was uh, at stake, and they couldn't whipsaw one uh, plant or one industry or one company against another. They were all in it together, and they were all trying to come to a common understanding and that's uh, that's what happened. First with a settlement with Ford, then with GM, and then with Stellantis, finally, all within a few days of each other. And there was another aspect to this, I think, that perhaps this was unusual. 
which was that the airing of the news about the negotiation was very public. This was happening in public. Sean Fain had weekly addresses in which he brought the ranking file up to date. And of course, the general public as well, up to date on what was happening on the success with each labor action at each individual plant. And this seemed to be unusual. And I, I think that the companies in the past have favored you know, private at-the-table negotiations, beginning with a gentlemanly handshake, which I think you talked about in a previous report. You know, Sean Fain eschewed that idea. We're not going to shake hands at the beginning. But the companies favor that private negotiation idea, which keeps, I think, the rank and file out of the conversation and makes for kind of a hush-hush, cozy conversation between the labor leaders and the company. What are your thoughts on that new approach? I think that the fact that these were public, and as you say, with weekly updates and with weekly reminders to the workers, but also to the public as to what this is really all about, it was essential. Because very, very often the, the news media tend to cover strikes in uh, the goods industries like auto or uh, electrical equipment or whatever as consumer issues. Oh, you know, there's going to be a shortage of, of uh, F-150 trucks, and that's going to be terrible for consumers because everybody wants to buy these trucks, and now there's a strike, and that gets in the way of people getting their trucks. Well, what the UAW was doing by bringing this out publicly was to say, this is not about consumers, this is about workers. And the consumers who are buying those trucks are also workers. And so they have in their capacity as working class people an interest in making sure that this strike is successful, even though they might not get their F-150 quite as quickly as they otherwise would have. And so the idea of bringing these issues out publicly, the degree to which the auto workers sacrificed in the past and now needed to make it back in the two-tier system, for example, and in the wage reductions that they took, the idea that the management companies have been and the profits that the companies have had have been astronomical and the pay increases that the senior executives have had have been astronomical. Well, and where were the workers? These kinds of questions to needed to be brought publicly to everyone thinking about the strike and, le and learning about it or disadvantaged or, or inconvenienced by the strike in order to make it clear what it was really all, all about and how righteous the demands were and how legitimate it was and how important it was for workers everywhere to for this strike to be successful. So I think that the... Uh, um, way of bringing the negotiations into the public was something that was very, very important and something that we all ought to learn from. Do you think it put the companies on the defensive, given that these issues were being discussed publicly? For example, the GM CEO, Mary Barra, said deals are made at the table, not in public. And she was quite distressed that this was happening in public. Well, it's true that deals are made at the table. That's certainly true. They're not made in public. They're made at the table. But what happens at the table is influenced by what happens in the public. And that's the point. And uh, I think that uh, the executives don't want this uh, public because they don't want the public pressure. They don't want news reports, which there were every week, saying, look how big the wage increases were for the executives and look what's happened to the workers in the meantime. 
That was public information. That was on the news broadcast. That was on the evening news. That was on the cable news. You couldn't avoid that. Uh, so that developed a public presence for the workers, which, of course, management didn't like, but, of course, had an influence on their uh, willingness to come to a decision, to come to a negotiated settlement earlier than they otherwise would. Also, I think that it's noteworthy that as agreements were made with the individual companies, those were announced. Like I remember, I think Ford was the first to agree to having union labor do the battery production at certain plants, which was a major breakthrough. And that was announced. And, you know, I'm wondering what you think of that and how well, that's all part of the same public pressure. That's all part of the same uh, idea that uh, you let people know what you're trying to do, why you're trying to do it, why it's important to them, why it's important to them as workers in the public, not as consumers. And I think that the idea of saying, okay, we have this agreement at Ford, and now we want to produce, reproduce it at uh, GM and at Stellantis, and then later on, you know, as they try to organize uh, Volkswagen and Chattanooga and other places in the South where there are other uh, auto producers that are not union, that's how you do it. You you declare, you show your victories, you show your gains, and then you build on those. I wanted to also ask you about the way that the United Auto Workers, Sean Fain, with his the way he presented these issues around this strike was able to raise these issues that are relevant, not just to the UAW workers, but to the American working class and even the working class internationally in general. And, you know, how the conversation may have actually changed in a significant way that will have an effect on the struggle of working class people in general. Well, what Sean Fain was talking about was class warfare. He was open about it, clear. He was talking about this is a struggle of the working class, and it's not just in the auto industry. It's for everybody. And everybody uh, in working occupations around the country and around the capitalist world have suffered reductions in their living standards, reductions in their conditions of work over the last 20, 30, 40, even 50 years since the early 19, mid-1970s. So we have a situation where you have now a labor leader who's stepping forward, elected by the membership of his union, to say, well, we're, we're, we're not going to have this reduction in living standards anymore. We're going to resist that. We're going to take that back. We're going to increase our living standards now. We're going to re recover what we have lost and what's been taken from us. Now, that's a message that resonates with working people all across the country and with workers all across the capitalist world. So I think that in that sense, what Sean Fain has done is issued a call to workers everywhere, to unions everywhere. Now, whether that will have an effect, whether that will go anywhere, uh, and it obviously remains to be seen. This has just happened a couple of weeks ago. Now, one thing I think that is an indication of his uh, interest in this, Sean Fain's, is his call to have collective bargaining agreements in the future all expire on the same day so that all workers in all industries are negotiating contracts at the same time. 
And so there can be what you would think would be a general strike. You know, if you have uh, the auto workers going out, well, what if the auto workers and the steel workers and the uh, electrical workers and the hospital workers uh, and the Starbucks workers all went out on the same day, except not in every plant, in every shop, in every, uh, uh, you know, uh, call center, but rolling strikes that would shut down things who knew where well that would have quite a disruptive effect on uh, on capital uh, much more so than having a strike in one industry and since we are talking about capital and the capitalist class as a class and the working class as a class confronting one another in these battles the way that Sean Fain is presenting this as an opportunity for workers across industries to coordinate their uh, expiration date in their contracts is brilliant, if it can be done. <laughs> that would certainly be amazing. Well, I think that his use of the kind of terminology and rhetoric has already raised the consciousness of millions of people. I think the reverberations are yet to be felt, but let's talk about perhaps other labor news. There has been an upheaval that preceded the United Auto Workers action. So some of those things are ongoing. Can you bring us up to date on any of those? Well, we have a settlement in the uh, writer's strike. And, uh, you know, that was a major, major thing for the really for almost for the first time what the writers were able to do was to get negotiated contract terms on the technology that's being used. The technology is not something that is uh, a, what's called a mandatory subject for negotiation. The law does not require companies to negotiate questions of technology. They have to negotiate questions of wages and working conditions and things, uh, grievance procedures. That is by law required under the Wagner Act or the National Labor Relations Act in the private sector where there is a union, they have to negotiate that. But they don't have to negotiate technology. But here the writers were able to force the companies, the, the, the producers and the media companies, to give them rights in the way in which the media are being produced. So in particular with artificial intelligence, that's a technical development, a technological development. It's very interesting. It's very productive, very powerful. But can an AI algorithm be the author or the, you know, the, the credited author of a TV series? What happens to the writers who are supposed to be writing? Well, and the answer here is no. They can't, the, you can use AI to get a first draft. You can use AI to get some sense of what the, the plot ought to be or how it ought to be developed. But you still have to have a writer's room. And that writer's room has to have a certain number of writers in it. And they have to be paid in order to work, work over that script and make it into an, a final product. Now, the negotiated limits on the use of artificial intelligence is, let's hope, a forerunner to the way other unions and other workers will be able to deal with technological innovation. Uh, and as the saying goes in the labor movement, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. So I think workers have to get at the table about all these questions, otherwise they're just going to get eaten alive 
in the way that the uh, technology unfolds, particularly with artificial intelligence. So the the, uh, the writers were able to do something very, very uh, important there. Um, Another breakthrough. Yeah, very important. Uh, you're listening to the Monthly Labor Report with Michael Zweig. My name is Richard Hill. This is WPKN in Bridgeport, 89.5 FM, and streaming online at WPKN.org. Well, Michael, are there any other imminent labor issues that are coming up? Well, we still have the sag after strike that's still going on. The actors uh, and uh, people in television and, and uh, theater, the movie production, that's still going on. We don't know quite how that's going to end yet. Uh, and that's an important thing, uh, you know, to keep our eyes on. And I think this call that Sean Fain has put to have contracts expire at the same time, I'd just like to flag that as something to keep track of in the contract negotiations that come up, uh, which may not be particularly exciting or particularly thrilling in their particulars, but if they end up with contract expiration dates that merge with other industries and with other other workforces taken together, that could be really quite a very profound development uh, co coming off of uh, what the UAW has done. Well, Michael, let's turn to the kind of substrate issues or more theoretical territory that we get into on these labor reports. So perhaps what we can do is to take a look at your book, your new book, which is entitled Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism, with a forward by Reverend William Barber. In my opinion, this is a, a really a meticulously but I think plain spoken dissection of the structures and forces at play in different economic systems from slavery to feudalism, capitalism, and socialism, in the course of which you grapple with issues of race, gender, and patriarchy. And for example, you frame race as a, an instrument of social control directed at white working people as well as blacks. But an important aspect of the book is your analysis of capitalism, a topic that I think is rarely discussed in academia or in the media. And you, you open your discussion about capitalism with the observation, quote, that it, it is enormously controversial to ask the question whether exploitation exists in capitalism. <laughs> so why don't we take it from there? Give us your general overview of your new book, and then we can get into some of the basic mechanisms of the capitalist system, which, according to your analysis, result in exploitation and extreme income inequality. Thank you for bringing this book up. It's uh, brand new, uh, out from PM Press, as you say, at pmpress.org. The point of the book is to bring some understanding of how the system or the capitalist system works to generate all the different social movements that we see bubbling up in the country at this time. Racial justice movements, the labor movement, the fight for 15, the organizing movements that we've did, contract negotiations we've just been talking about, environmental movements, the women's movement, all these different things are individual movements. They have their own constituencies, their own demands, and they have, in a way, their own silos 
in the way that the society is operating. But really, they all arrive out of the same place. They all arise out of the way in which capital functions. So they all have a common target, deep target, a deep focus that all these movements should uh, should and, and can share, which is a challenge to the power of capital. So if we look at these race issues, for example, race in this country has its meaning only in the context of class and class division started, uh, you know, because we, we had racial slavery. We didn't just have slavery in this country. This wasn't just a slave society in the South. This was a racial slave society in which the people who were enslaved were of African descent, not of European descent. And that division has its origins going all the way back to the late 17th century in Virginia, where there was a joint rebellion by African and English laborers to have better terms and conditions, particularly when they were freed from their bondage of, of uh, indentured service that brought them to this country with seven, day, seven years of uh, indentured labor. The British, in order to break up that united rebellion of African and European labor and English labor, enslaved the African population, not the English population. And so that initial racial slavery was done in order to divide the power of working people in rebellion against their, their rulers. And that places race in this country squarely in the orbit of class dynamics. So in that sense, you can't really defeat racism in this country and racial oppression without challenging the power of capital and transforming the power of capital because it's that power which has brought this racial uh, uh, inequalities and racial oppression into place in the first place. Well, you get into some really important analysis of capitalism, the mechanisms of capitalism, different economic systems as well. But the, the main focus of the book, I think, is how capitalism functions in the society to create uh, the injuries and divisions that you reference in the title. Why don't we talk about this very interesting and complicated, but I think very well analyzed in ways that even somebody like myself can understand. And that is the issue of the creation of surplus Right. That, occur, that occurs, I think, as a natural function of labor. Right. Very important question. And it, the question of surplus goes all the way back in human experience to some of the most economically primitive societies where people just scratched out a living and that's all they could do. Gradually, people developed the capacity to produce more than what they needed. And producing more than what the laboring or the working or the producing population needed that's the beginning of surplus. Surplus means more than what the surplus is beyond what is needed for the working population to reproduce itself, to survive and reproduce itself. Now, some societies take that surplus at the end of the year and they have a big party and they eat it all up and they have a great time and then they go back to work for the next year and produce some more. And if there's more left over at the end, they have another party. Now, Sometimes 
that doesn't quite work out that way. Somebody gets the idea at the end of the year to take that surplus and not have a party to throw it back to everybody, but to take it for themselves. And they could live a little better while all these laboring people will go back to work and work some more, and then a surplus will be created and somebody else will come along and take it. And that taking by some people of a surplus created by the working population, that's the basis of what we call exploitation. And that has a long history before capitalism. Feudal societies, slave societies, tributary societies, all kinds of societies way long before there was capitalism had surplus produced and had exploitation and had a ruling class that dominated that producing class. They could be slave owners. They could be the aristocracy in feudal society. And in capitalist society, those are the capitalists. Those are the uh, people who run the uh, corporations and the businesses through which the working class creates everything. Now, in capitalism, that surplus is created and taken in a very different way from the way it was in slavery or the way it was in feudalism. So when I say uh, people don't like to talk about exploitation and capitalism because everybody's supposed to be just getting what they put in, I, uh, people are generally pretty comfortable that slaves were exploited. You know, the slaves produced things and uh, the masters took it. And then the masters gave back some of that to the slaves. All the housing that you see that the slaves had, the huts they lived in, and the houses that they had and the food that the masters gave it all to them. But where did the masters get it? The masters got it from the slaves who produced it in the first place. So that we don't have too much problem in this country understanding that. Or that serfs that were working on the land uh for some feudal aristocracy were exploited the problem comes oh in capitalism we got rid of all that well no in capitalism we change the way it's done and that's what my book is trying to explain is how exploitation is done in capitalism but is still done so that there is a surplus a very large surplus that working people create in this country it all gets taken by capital and some of it shows up as profit. But one of the points that I make in this book that I think is very important is that that surplus also shows up in all kinds of activity in finance and in commerce and in real estate that creates nothing. It's unproductive in the sense that it doesn't produce anything. It facilitates the production of things. Now, there's nothing wrong with facilitating, but it's not producing. And so all the surplus that goes to the financial sector, maybe some of it doesn't have to go there. Maybe that facilitation can be handled with less resources going to it and more of that surplus getting devoted to increasing the living standards of workers or increasing the productive capacity of the society to really produce things and make things. And that, I think, is a set of issues that uh, I try to get at at this book in order to come up to the question, well, where's the money going to come from? Where are the resources going to come from to have health care for everybody, to have good housing for everybody, to have a decent living standard for everybody who works for a living? The answer is not just tax the rich or get the profits. The answer is what's going on with this surplus? And can we capture some of that surplus and repurpose it? to the benefit of the working people. And that is a 
different way of understanding, a different way of looking at how we're going to pay for uh, the things that uh, a progressive agenda sets forth. Well, are labor struggles really a question of trying to redirect some of that surplus into increasing the living standard of the workers who are doing the producing? Well, that's what goes on in any contract negotiation for a company, like in these auto negotiations. They were looking and saying, look, the company's making all this profit. We should have some of that profit for ourselves to have a better living standard. Because after all, where did that profit come from? It came from the work that the workers did in producing all these cars. That's at one level. But there's a whole social level at which that same question can be asked. What can we do to take the surplus, not just that's in one company's profits or another company's profits, but in the structure of the economy as a whole and take through a political process, not through collective bargaining, but through a political process, capture some of that surplus and repurpose it not to uh, finance and better uh, credit swap, default swap, uh, you know, securities that we can all play with if we have enough money. Well, let's not do that. Let's take the surplus that's in finance and move it over. Let's take some of the surplus that's in commerce and move it over into productive purposes. That's a, a, a social question that goes way beyond what happens in any particular collective bargaining agreement. And that political process requires a powerful working class politics, which we don't have in this country yet. It sounds like something that may have happened during the Roosevelt's New Deal. Were there structural changes that had to be made during the New Deal that resulted in a redirection of surplus into creating social programs that benefited the working class? Yes, to some degree that did happen. Uh, And a way to understand that in the case of the New Deal is to understand that just as the slave owners had control of all the products that the slaves made, but had to give some back to the slaves. Otherwise, they couldn't live and they couldn't produce anymore. And then where would the slave owners be? They'd have to go to work. (laughs) Well, we can't have that. So what we have is a situation in which the producing population has to get enough to survive. Somehow or other, there have to be mechanisms for that. And in slavery, there were mechanisms. In feudalism, there are mechanisms. In tributary societies, there are mechanisms. And in capitalism, there are mechanisms by which the working population gets back a part of what it has produced so that it can survive. In capitalism, that comes in two forms. It comes in the private wage that workers get when they go to work. So they have a wage they can go out and buy things. But they also get what could be called a social wage, where through public policy, they get resources directed towards them that allow them to live and to reproduce and to have children and to go back to work. That could be health care. That could be Social Security. That could be uh, relief benefits. That could be food stamps. That could be all kinds of so, the so-called social safety net. But if we think of the safety net not so much as, oh, what happens when people get, uh, you know, get poor? But if we think of the safety net as a social wage, not a, that complements the private wage, 
then we see that what that social wage is, just like the private wage, is a way for working people to get back part of what they've produced for their own reproduction and for their own living standards and to advance those living standards. And so what the New Deal did was they established these social programs that were paid for out of taxation and they were paid for by the public, but really through progressive taxation more by the wealthy than the, than the working population and the poor. And that was a mechanism to redirect a part of what was produced away from being surplus towards being sustaining material, you know, material for working people, which they would get not through their private wage, but through these uh, socials, what I'm calling a social wage. And I, uh, the New Deal was, was something of that sort. What I'm talking about here is something beyond that is saying, okay, you've got these uh, financial sector that's doing all these crazy things with the credit default swaps and with this kind of uh, uh, deal and that kind of a deal and this merger and this acquisition and all the money that's going to the lawyers and to the financial analysts and all the people who are involved in that. That doesn't create one thing for anybody. All it does is it moves some stuff around for who's going to get it. But it doesn't create anything. So that isn't that's unproductive activity. That that doesn't really create anything. So what if you had a tax on mergers and acquisitions deals? So you're gonna have a mergers and acquisition deal. If you make some money on it, fine, make some money, but we're gonna take 95% of that money. You can have five percent, it's okay, but we're gonna take 95% of that money and we're gonna use it to build schools. We're gonna use it to, re, to ref, uh, refurbish bridges and public housing. Well, that is beyond what happened in the New Deal, but it is the kind of thing which you could say is a policy that would increase the social wage and redirect the surplus from unproductive uses to uses that sustain uh, the living standards and improve the living standards of working people. Well, I would think that you're proposing, I would imagine, or perhaps I'm extrapolating from what you're saying, that it would be a combination of that kind of innovation, which may or may not be happening in other social democratic systems, in, let's say in Scandinavia and other parts of Europe, combining of that with progressive taxation, higher corporate taxes, higher taxes on high-income individuals. Am I right about that? Or That's you, right. That's yeah, right. Yeah. So, for example, we're looking at Social Security right now, and people are saying, oh, my God, it's going to run out of money. Well, one big reason why it might run out of money is because rich people don't have to pay Social Security tax. If you make more, I don't know what it is now, $160,000 a year, you stop paying Social Security tax. That FICA tax, 6.5%. Now, wait a second. If rich people don't pay their taxes into the system, which the system was originally designed to rely on that money, but after 1986, when there was a revamp under Reagan of the Social Security laws, they capped what wealthy people would have to pay. So, of course, it's it's got financial problems. The solution to the problem is not to make an iron worker work until he's 70 years old. 
The solution is to take some guy who's making $200,000 or $300,000 or $4 million and have them pay that same 6.5% Social Security tax into the system that everybody else is paying. Yeah, and you're talking about the 6.5% that they would pay on money that they earned above the $160,000. That's right, because they're they're paying that on what they're – on on what they're making up to that now. Yeah. Yeah. We just don't have a cap on it. Right. Just keep paying. And then you could talk talk about well, should it should capital income be taxed too if you're making money through uh capital gains? Should that be a subject to social security tax? You know, those are all discussions about where is the money and how can surplus be redirected and who controls that surplus to make that decision. And that is a question both of the private power of unions in their corporations when they dis, when they negotiate contracts, but it's also a question of politics and the political uh, influence of the state to structure the economy in such a way that the surplus gets used for productive purposes. Well, Michael, this has been a very interesting conversation, as usual. Our monthly labor report with Michael Zweig comes to you the first week of each month, and we will have another one in December. It's been great talking to you, and I think what we'll do in future conversations is to get further into, in addition to our updates on what's happening on the labor landscape each month, to get further into analyzing some of these issues that are so seldom discussed. I mean, I think even in our as I said, in academia, you know, conversations about economics are very superficial, very delimited to basically cheerleading the current system that we operate under rather than analyzing it and attempting to come up with a critique of it, which is so needed. But your book is definitely a roadmap to that very conversation. And I think we'll continue to look at it and to bring issues from it to these conversations. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Well, thanks, Michael. We will talk to you all again next month. Thanks. Bye-bye. 